We turn again to our Bibles and we turn to the first chapter of Genesis, the first page of our Bibles, and we're going to start to read in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 1 this morning. We've read the first 13 verses on an earlier Sunday morning. So we pick up the narrative of creation. Um, Well, I think actually what we'll do is we'll go back to verse 9. Otherwise, no, I, I beg your pardon. Verse 14 is correct. The beginning of the fourth day. Verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds. And every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, according to their kinds livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us... Make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, 
I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day, from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so this morning, friends, brothers and sisters, I want us to think about how God created, and about what God created, and about why God created. These are massive questions with very important answers. And as we look at this subject this morning of God creating, it is good for us to remember that we are creative because we are made in the image of a creator God. You and I are creative in different ways. And we might think straight away of various crafts and artistic skills, whether it's cakes or ceramics or plants or paintings or poetry. We all have creative capacities. But this also works at the most, if you like, mundane level of all. In the course of our lives, in the course of each day, we all have to be about our work. And our work is a matter of creative, intelligent capacity. What is your work? Well, I can tell you that your work is a work of creation. It might be something as simple as tidying the house. It might be servicing laptops. It might be shopping for food or clothes. It might be getting your school bag ready for Monday morning, hopefully before Monday morning actually comes round. But whatever it is we do, our model... And our example in being creative is no one other than the creator God. We are creative because, first of all, he is the creative creator. And we learn a great deal as we look at God the creator in this magnificent first chapter of Genesis. But before we come to it, I want to just deal with one other question first that I think needs to be tackled. This 
account of creation that we have in our Bibles in the first chapter of Genesis, and indeed the first three verses and also chapter 2, it stands alone. It stands above and outside every other account of creation or of origins. It is unique. It is like no other. Now, there are some folk who will say things like this. And the Wikipedia page on creation accounts or creation myths will do exactly this. They will say, this Genesis account is just one of a number of ancient stories or myths about creation. Uh, You can find them in other traditions. You can go to the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Sumerians or even the, uh, the American, the Amerindians, and you can find they have their own creation narratives. You have the Babylonian Enuma Elish. You have the Sumerian Eridu Genesis. You have other later accounts like the Gilgamesh epic to do with the flood. You have even the Cherokee water beetle narrative. And people will say, well, Genesis is just one of those stories. It just happens to be the Jewish one, the Hebrew one, the Israelite one. Now, we have to say this morning most clearly that there is the greatest difference between those creation myths and the magnificent narrative of Genesis chapter 1. You go to those myths, and what do you find? You find that this is what there is. Several gods, lots of gods, arguing gods, warring gods, rival gods, fighting gods, lusting gods, and goddesses. Somehow, between them, using all sorts of means, fair and foul, coming up with some kind of created universe. How beautifully pure and simple and exquisite and different is our biblical creation account. It is the work of one true and living sovereign God. And we take this narrative that we have just read to be the inspired, infallible, inerrant reliable word of God. We don't need any other. I use the word other. We don't need any creation myths. We don't need any other narratives in order to understand Genesis chapter 1. We don't need ancient creation myths. We don't need modern ones either, which you will see on the BBC and elsewhere. They have no hope for us. They are mere speculation. They are unreliable. They lead to despair. But the word of God gives us hope and truth and certainty. Now, let's be very clear about that. We stand on the whole word of God. And in doing so, we learn this morning three great lessons about God's creative work which are of the greatest value to us as creators, as creators with a small c, who are made in God's image. What do we see? 
We see order. And we see clarity. And we see purpose. And we look at those three things one after the other this morning. First of all, order. The how of God's creation. Notice that there is order and organization within this creation account. There are six distinct days of creation, and the work that God does on each day follows a wise, careful, clearly planned sequence. And you can see, and you may know, that the three days, sorry, the six days fall into two sets of three. There is what God makes on the first three days, and then he comes back to those same three things on the second group of three days. Like an artist beginning one picture on day one, and another on day two, and another on day three, On day four, he goes back to day one, as it were. And on day five, he goes back to day two. And on day six, he goes back to day three. I think I got that more or less right. There is a one, four, two, five, three, six pattern there. So what do we see, for example? We see that on day one, we have the creation of light. But on day four, we have the creation of the lights. The sun and the moon and just a few thousand trillion stars that God happened to make on the same day. On day two, we have the creation of sea and sky. And on day five, we have the creation of what fills the sea and the sky. The sea creatures in the sea, in all their myriad diversity and the birds and the winged creatures that fill the sky. That's two and five. And then on day three, we have the creation of the land. And on day six, we have the creation of what populates the land, the land animals. And then finally, man himself. Now, what do we see here? We see order. God is working according to a plan a schedule, a timetable. And that is a model for you and me in the work that we do. Before beginning any project, we need to give it planning, thought. Proverbs 24, verse 27, is a wonderful verse, which I really only noticed a few weeks ago. It deals with exactly this theme, and it says this, Prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. It doesn't say, build your house, then go out into the field, and then get everything ready that you need to build with. Why not? Because that would be in the wrong order. First the planning, then the building. First the planning, then the making. First the thinking it through, and then the actual doing. Didn't Jesus tell a parable about a man who said he was going to build a great tower? 
and he began the foundations, but he couldn't build any further than that, and he became a laughing stock among his neighbors because what he began, he couldn't finish. Our God is not like that. And as creative people, neither should we be like that. When you're cooking a dish, you make sure you have all the necessary ingredients and equipment to hand before you put the oven or the gas ring, or whatever it might be, on. You take time to do that. If you're writing an essay or answering an exam question, you take time to read the question carefully. There we are, exam people. And you take time to plan your answer very carefully. Some of you finished, I realize that. I'm sorry, it's a bit late, this illustration for some of you, but others have got exams still to come. If a very busy week of work lies ahead of you on a Monday, you sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and you plan your way through that week, don't you? And you say, I'll do things in this order. It makes sense. It's the way that we work most effectively and efficiently. It's the way we mimic our creator God. He does things in order. He does things according to a plan. Don't cut the grass on Tuesday before you fix the lawnmower on Wednesday. Fix the lawnmower on Tuesday and then cut the grass on Wednesday unless it happens to be raining on both days, which is very likely based on June 2019 so far. Anyway, Genesis chapter 1 shows God working according to a timetable. Every day's work is set out. Every day's work is planned scheduled, in the right place. God comes to day one. He sees, as it were, on his timetable, day one, the work today is listed for me. I will do that job, says God, as it were. He finishes day one's work. He tidies his desk. That's the end of day one. Along comes night. Then comes day two, another body of work for God to do. Day two's work is attempted. It is done. It is done. It is finished and so on, right to the end of day six, where God looks at everything he's done, and the good of day one, two, three, four, and five has become very good when he makes man human beings. Can you see, friends, that in all of this, there's great wisdom for us in the way that we go about our work. Children at school, Older people at home or in the office or in the shop or wherever you may be, let's all go about our work in an ordered, organized, thoughtful way because our Creator does that. Second thing we see is we see in this narrative great clarity. Clarity, which means it is very clear Here we have the what of creation. Not so much the how, but the what. There is clarity. There is definition. There is distinctiveness in what God is making. He doesn't make a mess. No. We saw last Sunday morning, didn't we? In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. That the earth at the very beginning, was formless and empty 
and void. It was a confused mass of raw materials until the Spirit of God got to work on it. And then God said, let there be light. And from that moment on, when God turned the light on, as it were, and could see what he was working on, then the order, the clarity, the shape, the definition, the clear lines, as it were, began to take their place. What are we saying? God, the creator, removes confusion and he brings clarity and definition in its place. And we see this emphasis on clarity, on definition, throughout this whole creation account. Can you see how the six days are clearly distinguished from each other? They're like six separate drop files in a filing cabinet, aren't they? They're like six separate shelves on a bookcase. They're six quite distinct days where there are distinct things to do. Day and night are distinguished from each other. Day does not equal night. Day does not merge into night. Heaven and earth and earth and sea are clearly distinguished from each other. The air is not the same as the land, neither is the water the same as the land or the air. They are different. And then we see it particularly, you notice, in these verses that talk about God creating all the various animals. Do you notice that word that's used that I tried to bring out clearly in the later verses of chapter 1? He made these creatures according to their kinds. Kinds of plants. Kinds of sea creatures, kinds of birds, kinds of beasts, different kinds of livestock, different kinds of creeping things, all according to their kinds. We need to see that. Our God is a God of clarity, of distinction, of classification. He says, this is one kind And this is another. And we all know that, don't we? A dingo is not the same as a dolphin. A raccoon is not the same as a rhinoceros. And even small children will recognize the difference. Now, while there are these different kinds, let's be clear about this. We are talking about clarity. There is undoubtedly a measure of variety and alteration within certain kinds. I'll mention the famous Charles Darwin, who went to the Galapagos Islands, and there he found, as you may know, a number of finches. And these finches exhibited various different features in terms of their beaks and other such anatomical structures. Now, there may well be a measure of If I use the word evolution, you will understand there may well be a measure of change and adaptation within the kinds that God has made. But the kinds are God's kinds. And he says, I'm defining these kinds. You can't go through the barriers between these kinds. The finches did not evolve into frogs 
or foxes or even flamingos. They stayed as finches. And God made these kinds. God loves classification. God loves clarity. And so should we. We should uphold and respect the clarifications and distinctions that God has established. We don't come to Genesis 1 and read, in the beginning, God made loads of stuff. He made some stuff and a bit more stuff and then that kind of stuff, and he just made stuff. He just made whatever's there. It's all kind of stuff out there. No, that's dishonest, that's lazy, and that's plain wrong. And we need to respect the distinctions, the clear structures that God has put in his creation. We should respect day and night. And unless we have to work night shifts, and some of us might have to work night shifts, or be mothers looking after very small children, day is a time for waking and working. Night is a time for resting and sleeping. We should observe that as far as we can. We should safeguard our work and our rest and our sleep and our mealtimes. There is something very sacred almost. There's something very clear in the whole word of God about eating being a distinct human activity. More about that maybe next Lord's Day morning. We should differentiate between six days of work and the one day of rest and of worship that God himself observed when he created the earth. You ask the question, why did God take six days to create the earth? He could have taken 4.6 billion years. He could have taken a nanosecond. He could have done it in no time whatsoever had he so chosen. But he did it in six days, we are told. Why did he do it in six days? Because he wants us to mimic him as our creator and to be like him and to follow that pattern and to observe and respect his own distinctions that he has put in place. Clarity is good. There's lots of clarity in this chapter. There are clear distinctions between animals and human beings made in God's image. More about that next time. There are clear differences between adults and children that the Bible brings out. There is, of course, a clear distinction between male and female which is presently, as many of you will know, the great battle that is being waged, where there is an ungodly force at work to say that male and female really have no clear distinction, but they are a kind of spectrum, a kind of mass of, well, you choose what you are, male, female, or something else, and you can go from one to the other. God, at the beginning, created male and female. 
There is a distinction between good and evil, between right and wrong, between true and false, between God and the devil. There is a distinction, isn't there, between the one true way of salvation, which is through Jesus Christ alone, and every other pretended way, which is a false way and no way at all. Do you know, we need to be so clear about that. We need to be crystal clear about that. There is only one way that your soul and mine can find salvation and forgiveness and eternal life, and that is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, alone. The worst thing that could ever, ever happen to me or any preacher would be for someone to say to me, I've been listening to you, and I really don't know what, you, what you're saying. You're not clear. You've not made it clear to me that I had to have faith in Jesus Christ alone to be saved. That would be the worst thing imaginable for any preacher, any evangelist, indeed, I think, any Christian. God is a God of clarity. We should love that clarity, observe that clarity. But I come to a final point. Purpose. We've had order. We've had clarity. And now we come to purpose. No longer the how, nor the what, but the why. Why did God create? What we do should have a purpose. There's no point in attempting any task or project unless you know why you are doing it, and that the reason you're doing it is a worthwhile reason. And God himself has a purpose in creating the heavens and the earth in these six days. The structure of this whole chapter tells us that God is working towards a grand crescendo, where the whole orchestra is about to uh, get their instruments working at the loudest possible pitch. Not only a drum roll, but all the orchestra working together as the creation of man is about to be announced. It's there in verse 26, isn't it? That's the grand climax and the purpose of God's creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The earth was created, and the earth was filled, as we have read in this chapter. For what reason? Where's it all going? You were doing something last week at work or at home. You were involved in some great project. What was it going towards? Why were you doing it? What was your purpose in doing what you were doing? Let's hope there was a purpose in what I was doing, what you were doing. Well, what is God doing here? What is the purpose of God? It is to create a world where humankind can live and exercise dominion. 
which means to rule and to govern as a steward, as a representative of God over the earth. This world is our home, and God has given it to us. You remember that verse from a few Sundays ago, Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth God has given to the children of man, which basically means God has given to the whole human race. And in our own day and age, we are so privileged to watch wonderful documentaries on TV, whether it's David Attenborough or Steve Bakshul or Brian Cox, whoever it might be. We see these wonderful documentaries about, about the world, about its wildlife, its oceans, its mountains, its weather, its place in the solar system, in the universe, its breathtaking photography. But unless we are watching specifically Christian documentaries, these experts will never ever tell us that the earth was created by a good God for our human race, that a wise, loving God gave the earth to the children of man. Now think with me for a few moments about this. Think about the world in which we live and compare it with what you know about every other body in the whole solar system or universe. How remarkable and unique is our world? The temperature, the temperate climate of vast parts of the world neither too hot nor too cold, the so-called Goldilocks zone that the Earth is in. That's remarkable, isn't it? Venus is far too hot. Mars is much too cold, but the Earth. And the Earth's atmosphere, the right mix of oxygen and nitrogen, and the air pressure being as it is at sea level, and the presence of liquid water in the seas and in the lakes and rivers and the properties of water and the unique chemical properties of the element carbon and the way it bonds with itself and other elements in remarkable ways. The extensive, diverse, vast range of animal and plant life. The provision of food and other natural resources in the world. The beauty of the whole universe that we can enjoy, from the tiniest creature, from little animals that swarm in ponds, to the mountains and the waterfalls and the lakes and the sky and the sun and the moon and the stars. Let me tell you this. It is only the blindness of unbelief which refuses to see and to say that all this is the good creation of a wise God for the people he has made. To say it all came about by chance is unbelief. God has made all this for us to enjoy. 
And then as I say this word in joy, I realize that we haven't really finished this morning, have we? Because if I said to you, isn't it great to go around the world and see how every single human being in every place enjoys life, enjoys this world? Oh, you can go around all the continents of the earth and everyone's enjoying themselves, having a wonderful life. That's not true, is it? That's not true at all. Why not? Have I just been telling porky pies this morning? Is it actually a wicked lie that the earth is a home for human beings given to us by God? The answer is, this world remains our home. But it is a fallen, flawed, sick, and dying home. This world is under a curse. This world is a place of sadness, of sin, of sickness. Just two chapters after Genesis 1 comes Genesis chapter 3 which describes the first temptation, the first sin, the fall of our human race from righteousness and the curse on the earth which results. This earth was created to be a paradise, but it's no longer a paradise, is it? We feel weak in our bodies and minds and we get ill And we live in a world that is plagued by drought and flood and famine and earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis and thorns and thistles and environmental disorder and confusion and war and corruption and death. God's good earth became contaminated, polluted, diseased, along with everything and everyone living on it. We live in an old world which is disordered and will one day pass away. And if this was the whole truth, if this was all we had to say, then our lives would be lives of nothing but bleak despair wouldn't they? If I said to you, friends, this morning I've come here to tell you that God made a good world and that world is now corrupt and ruined and we're all going to die, that's all I've got to say, we would have nothing to look forward to, no hope. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We are under a curse. We're finished. There's nothing good to look forward to. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's no happiness. There's no peace. There's just this sad, bleak world. I'm getting older. I'm going to die one day. So are you. And the world will be burnt up one day, one way or the other, won't it? And that's the end of it all. But that's not the end of it all, is it? That's why we gather. That's why we call ourselves the Church of Jesus Christ. Because God sent his own Son into this world. The eternal Son of God. Why? The first answer I can give is so that sinners like you and me and Henry Atherton, whom we thought about earlier this morning, could be saved 
and forgiven and reconciled to God. And we heard about that last week from our friends who testified here at this place how God has been gracious to them and saved them and brought them to know him. And you can find that eternal life too in Jesus Christ. That is a wonderful, the most wonderful of blessings. But can I say this? Even your own individual personal salvation and mine is only one part of an even greater plan and purpose that God is putting into operation. We've thought this morning about God's first creation of the earth in terms of order and clarity and purpose. And the first creation, Genesis 1, was God's plan God's project, God's design. But even that first creation was only the first part of a far greater plan and project and design which God is working out. Understand this. We don't come here simply to marvel at the first creation and say, isn't God good for making a wonderful world? That would be in one sense, a great thing to do, but we do far more than that. Why? Because as we've seen, this world is fallen and cursed and diseased, and our God has a far greater plan and purpose than simply making this old earth. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, speaks about God's great plan. What is that plan? Ephesians 1 and verse 10 a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. That is, all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And let me put it to you as simply as this, as I draw to a close. If you and I belong to Jesus Christ, If you are a follower and disciple of Jesus, if you are born again of the Holy Spirit and united to Christ, then you and I and all who are thus are happy, privileged, blessed, participators, and I will use this word, We are even stakeholders in all things. We have a part in it. We have a stake in it. We belong to eternity. We belong to all things in heaven and all things on earth, which are given to Jesus Christ, which are from him and through him and for him. I'm saying to you, you have more than your own individual salvation to rejoice in. Glorious though that is to the praise of God, you have a new heaven and a new earth and eternity to belong to if you are in Christ. Paul writes to the squabbling Corinthian church who are so rivals with each other, at odds with each other, arguing with each other, factions little groups, little cliques here and there. And he says, this is pathetic. You just don't get it, do you? 
Don't you understand, my dear Christian believers, he says, all things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Do you understand? Do you understand what I'm preaching to you this morning? How God has a plan to unite in himself through Jesus Christ everything in heaven and on earth, everything in the universe, all things. Are you a part of that? Because you have seen that Jesus Christ alone is the Lord and Savior from heaven who has come to deal with your sin and to ransom your soul and to woo you to himself and to unite you to him now and forever. What did our Lord Jesus himself say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you want to inherit the earth? The Bible says you can. Forget inheritance tax that various rival governments might bring in if they're elected into power one day soon. There's no inheritance tax in glory. There's no confiscation of your inheritance by some state authority. There's none of that. What the Lord Jesus says is this. If you and I humble ourselves and are meek and lowly and we sit at the feet of Jesus and we say, Lord, you are my teacher, you are my savior, you are my instructor, you are the one I follow, you came for me, I listen to you, then you and I and all God's people together will inherit the earth, inherit the heavens, inherit all things, inherit the new paradise of God where Jesus Christ is king. That place of eternal, happy, righteous, perfect bliss. That will be yours. That will be mine by the sovereign grace of a wonderful God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all this you have made, all this we have read, all this we have seen. O Lord our God, work, we pray, in your mighty power to give each of us that hunger and desire and thirst to know you, to draw near to Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, knowing that we are complete in him, who is the head over every rule and authority. O Lord, thank you that you made this earth for the children of man, but that you are creating a new heaven and a new earth, a home for the resurrected Jesus Christ with all those who are in him, that inheritance guaranteed and made over to us who believe in him, 
O Lord, by your Spirit, work to unite many hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, even at this very hour, we pray. Be with us, help us, bless us. We ask all this in Jesus' name.